You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, if you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn it open this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are continuing in our study. This morning, we are looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. Feel free to follow along with me as I read for us. Matthew writes, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Honoring God with your life will always be difficult when your view of God is small. Ministry specifically becomes hard when your view of God is small, and I know this from personal experience. Some of you know a bit about my background, some of you don't. I'm going to inform you as to some of it. But the first ministry position that I ever held was with a ministry called Youth for Christ. Some of you are familiar with Youth for Christ. Uh, They're a, a great ministry. They are focused on reaching middle school and high school students specifically with the gospel. They are not connected to any one particular church. They work with a lot of different churches, even across denominational lines. So when I joined staff with Youth for Christ, like many people, say with Crew or InterVarsity or ministries uh, of of that sort, I had to raise support. And uh, man, that that was a really chaotic time in my life. Uh, At the time, I had just graduated with a finance degree from UND. I was also working at Starbucks, and I would go to Starbucks at about 5 in the morning and open up, work till about noon, and I'd head home, and I'd grab Caden, who, you know, Caden's 12 now. He was just a baby at the time, and pick him up, and I'd usually take him to, say, a support meeting, go grab lunch with... uh, some person or some family, and uh, then I would try to communicate the vision of Youth for Christ and what I was hoping to see God do in the local schools in Grand Forks, and people were kind to me. They were very kind. Some gave. Many prayed for me, encouraged me. I don't know. There's probably some that felt great sympathy for me. They see this young guy coming in with a baby on his arm and realizing he's probably struggling to hold life together and all all was good though and i remember though it wasn't too far down the road and all of a sudden 
like life just seemed to get really hard because as people gave money to support my ministry, Youth for Christ, I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, like at some point, these people, they're going to want to see some, some results from the mon money that they're giving, and they're going to want to know that their money is being well spent, and, and even just, you know, personally, I'm thinking, like, at some point, like, Lord, I, I would like to see us move into more schools, and, 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 you know, it's good that we all have a desire to see people reach with the gospel. Certainly, uh, I've always had the desire, still my desire today, see many come to know Christ, but when you're young, you, you don't exactly have realistic expectations, and uh, I, I think sometimes we like to see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories, and uh, in our heads, we always see things going a lot better than they actually turn out. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, in this ministry, what is going to be the way that we measure success? And I think at that point in my life, I had a very worldly idea of success. And so there was pressure. It wasn't from other people so much as I would say it was probably most of it was self-induced. Where you start thinking, well, how, how, how will we know that what we're doing is a success? And kind of the default answer for, for most people, I would say, is... We start counting heads. Well, how many people have showed up to this event? How many decisions were made for Christ? Again, I was thinking, how many campuses could we expand to? But the more I thought about these things, the more burdensome ministry became. Because behind all of these thoughts about the numbers, there was always this feeling of, well, I'm, I'm responsible, right, for making all this happen. It was entirely burdensome. That was at least until I read a book that absolutely changed my life called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. How many of you have read that book? Okay, we've got a couple of hands. I see those hands. Great book. I would uh, strongly uh, commend it to you. One of the things, though, that changed my thinking in this book was just how much emphasis the writer puts on the sovereign power of God over all things, especially the results of evangelism. And I just want to mention a couple of quotes for you from this book. In this book, Packer says things like, quote, and if we forget that only God can give faith, we shall start to think that the making of converts depends on the last analysis, not on God, but on us, and that the decisive favor is the way in which we evangelize. Later he says, It is not right when we regard ourselves as responsible for securing converts and look to our own enterprise and techniques to accomplish what only God can accomplish. A couple of sentences after this, he elaborates further by saying, Quote, only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan and pray and work in his service can we avoid becoming guilty of this fault. And friends, let me just tell you, that one truth changed everything for me because suddenly no longer did I feel responsible for the results of ministry. No longer did I believe things depended on me, but God... Sure, we're responsible for the effort. We're responsible for being faithful, but only God can give results. 
And this morning, friends, I hope that that is what encourages your heart. I, I, I hope that you will see the, the, the power and the wisdom and the grace of God at work through the gospel. And so, to do that, here's what I want to focus on. I want to give you two lessons about salvation that are presented to us by Jesus in our text today. Two lessons about salvation. So what are those? The first is this, salvation is sovereignly granted by God. Salvation is sovereignly granted by God. Look at verse 25. Notice what it says there. Matthew writes, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So, so Jesus praises the Father for hiding the knowledge and revelation of the gospel from some and for revealing it to others. To understand the context of the statement, though, we need to back up a little bit. So I want, I want to do that. If you would, look at verse 20. In verse 20, and Adam taught on this last week, Matthew writes, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So Jesus, we know has just pronounced judgment on different groups of people. And again, you wouldn't forget that if you were here last week because it was Mother's Day and it was a very interesting kind of message for Mother's Day. Jesus, though, continues in verse 21 where he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So Jesus has performed certain works in Chorazin and Bethsaida, but they did not repent. But if he had performed those same works in Tyre and Sidon, that he performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida, then what would have happened? They would have repented. So we're left wondering then, why didn't Jesus perform those same works in Tyre and Sidon? If he had performed them, the communities would have repented. And we're thinking to ourselves, this is a good thing, right? God desires repentance, right? He wants people to repent, to believe in Jesus. If he had performed more works in these communities, these people would have done it. But there's the tension, right? He didn't perform said works that would bring about repentance and chose intentionally and purposefully not to perform those works. And at this point, what maybe are some of you thinking? But that's not fair. It's not fair that, that Jesus wouldn't treat everyone equally. It's not fair that he would perform these great works in Chorazin and Bethsaida, but not in Tyre and Sidon. 
Some of you are thinking this. I have thought this. It's very normal for us to think this. But here's the thing. If we're thinking like this, then what's the deal? The fact is that we are functioning with a wrong idea about sin and the justice of God. That's why our mind goes towards accusing God of not being fair. What do I mean? We need to remember something, and the Bible is overwhelmingly clear about this, that God is not at any moment, at any time, obligated to save anyone. Do you realize this? The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, doesn't it? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What you and I have earned for our rebellion against God, for our sin against God, is His righteous judgment and condemnation on our lives. So, you need to understand this then, that when God saves someone, it's an act of mercy because he is not giving them what they rightly deserve. You get this? Grace and mercy are related. We, we often talk about grace as God giving us something we don't deserve. God gives us a gift. Mercy is the opposite side to the same point where God does not give us what we do deserve. He withholds his wrath and his judgment. And because of this then, when God chooses not to save some, what is the actual result? Justice. It's actually perfectly just for God to punish someone. And in fact, we can go even farther than that. We could say that if God were to send every person to hell, he would be perfectly just and right in doing so. That is the cold, hard facts. None of us can stand before the Lord and say, but, but, but look at all these other good things I've done. I know I've made mistakes, but how about, how about these works over here? No amount of works, no amount of good deeds ever cancel out the bad ones. Even today, if you stand before a judge and you know, you're guilty of, I don't know, running a red light, you're not going to come before the judge and be like, well, well, judge, if you had seen all the time I, uh, times I've actually followed the speed limit, like, doesn't that make up for the red light? No. Never. That's not justice. Anytime a judge just sweeps your offenses and your violations under the rug, it's not justice. And therefore, anyone who does so is a very imperfect and unjust judge. And yet, here we are thankful because does God send every single person to hell? No. He chooses to save some. He chooses to save some. And why? We're told in this text, he does so because of his gracious will. 
That's what Jesus is praising and thanking God for, that he has saved some. He has revealed the truth to some. He has hidden the truth from others. For such was his father's gracious will, or some translations say good pleasure. Salvation is God's prerogative. He can do whatever he wants at any time. And no one can point him and, and, and lay at his feet any blame. He doesn't have to dispense mercy, but he does, and we are thankful for it. And on the heels of this, that God hides the truth from some, reveals the truth to others, what does Jesus do? He praises God for it. I thank you, God, that you have, in essence, that Jesus is saying that you save some and you don't save others. I praise you that you hide yourself from some and you reveal yourself to others. I praise you both for those that you save and those that you don't. We need to reflect on this phrase, wise and understanding, because generally speaking, wisdom is typically a very good thing, isn't it? Proverbs 1 says, uh, Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We are to seek wisdom, ask God for wisdom, love wisdom, cherish wisdom. But you see, wisdom here is not, it, it, it is not the true and real wisdom of God like Proverbs talks about. The kind of wisdom here, to understand what it's talking about, we need only to look at verse 23. Look there, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So the wise and the understanding, they are not those who are actually wise because they fear the Lord, but those who are wise in their own eyes. They have this attitude of arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency. It's reflected in that statement. They, they think they're going to be exalted to heaven. Some people today, they still think like that. Like, how could God not let me into his heaven? I'm a pretty good person. That's pride. That's arrogance. And the, and the problem, as you understand it rightly is that God does what with the proud? He opposes the proud. He always opposes the proud. And so it seems that when it, when it is that God senses that there's pride and that there's arrogance and that there's pompous and there's this feeling of self-sufficiency in people, then what does he do? He hides the gospel from them. He hides the gospel from them. And, and this is, frankly, this is pretty typical that we see this in Scripture. I'm going to give you a couple of other places we can see this. Uh, first, let's begin with Matthew 13. Verse 13, Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
the parables that we read about and we love in Scripture because they communicate so much truth uh, about the gospel and the kingdom of God, we need to understand why Jesus uses parables. He does so to conceal truth to certain, from certain people and reveal truth to others. He conceals, again, the truth from proud, arrogant, pompous, self-sufficient people. He reveals it to his true children, his true people. Another place we see this kind of thing taking place is in John 9. Some of you, you're very familiar with this story, but Jesus in this text, he heals a, a man who had been blind since birth. And uh, it's, it's actually a very comical story because what happens is after Jesus heals this man who's been blind since birth, and everybody knows that he's been blind. There's no dispute a miracle's been performed. But he, this man, he goes to the temple. He goes to the religious leaders. He tells them what happened. He, he tells them who healed him. And, and essentially they're poo-pooing the story. They're trying to belittle who Jesus is. And, and eventually what happens is they end with, are you going to teach us about the ways of God? And they kick him out of the temple. Well, later Jesus comes to him, and Jesus personally reveals his identity to this man. And immediately after he does this, Jesus says, apparently in the presence of other religious leaders, that can hear him. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Again, Jesus is talking about those who are wise in their own eyes. So Jesus reveals the truth to the blind man. He conceals it from the arrogant religious leaders. And again, this all makes sense to us because we know God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The question, though, that we need to at some point ask, how does anybody become humble, though, right? How does anybody become humble? Because the Bible is clear that every single person born into this world is marked by pride, by arrogance. We are by nature spiritually blind, morally corrupt, morally bankrupt. Romans 3 describes the situation like this. In verses 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? So if it is the case that we're all marked by rampant wickedness and the thoughts and intentions of our heart are only evil continually, then how does anyone believe in Jesus? It is because God has chosen before the foundation of the earth who he will save. 
And when the gospel comes to them, they are saved because God gives them humble hearts. He gives them the Holy Spirit to understand the message that they are hearing, and therefore they believe in Jesus. So many doctrines that are wrapped up in this that we can't unfold before you, but, but, but we need to understand there is this understanding of election and predestination and regeneration and all these different things come together in what we're seeing in our text today and again why does god do all of this why does he save someone reveal himself to some hide himself from others it's his gracious will or good pleasure and nobody else can argue with it because he's god our god is in the heavens he does all that he pleases So the Father chooses to hide the truth from some and reveal it to others. But who else does this? I want you to look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We just... Heard about the Father revealing Himself. Now, the same word is being used here of the Son. The Son is revealing the Father. So the Father chooses to hide and reveal the truth to some, and the Son also chooses to do the same. And the reason the Father and the Son both do this is because both are God. And God is not divided against himself. Therefore, all the persons of the Trinity share in the same will and the same nature and the same deeds. Said differently, what we see here in our text is, again, another reference to the deity of Christ. That Jesus is equal with the Father. And this is made clear in two specific statements in our text. The first is when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. So Jesus has been given by the Father all power, all authority, all influence. There's nothing that is left outside of Jesus' authority. The Father shared everything with him. But secondly, what more? Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. What's worth pointing out here is the word for know. In the Greek, the typical word used for knowing is gnosko. But here it's not just gnosko, but there's a prefix to gnosko, so it's epignosko. And in Greek, if someone wanted to intensify a word, they could do that by putting this prefix epi in front of it. Therefore, it is not simply that the Son and the Father are acquainted with each other, like maybe you're acquainted with the mailman or the FedEx driver, right? But we're talking about a fully intimate knowledge, an exhaustive knowledge. Think of a husband and a wife. That would be the closest example that we have to this kind of knowledge, we assume that, that a husband knows his wife better than anyone and that a wife knows her husband better than anyone. And yet we still feel, uh, fail to read each other's minds, don't we? 
married now for almost, well, 2007, you do the math, still trying to figure out what my wife wants for me at times, and I'm sure she struggles with the same thing as it pertains to me. This knowledge between the Father and the Son, it is a meticulous knowledge. There are no secrets between the Father and the Son. There are no surprises. And there never has been, because for all eternity, the Father and the Son have shared in a most perfect and loving relationship. Some people sometimes think that, uh, you know, what did God do before people were on the earth? Wasn't he a little bored? Is that, is that why he created humans? He just was a little bit lonely? So far from the truth. Before he created you or me, God lived in perfect relationship with himself. This is the beauty of the Trinity. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has always been and always will be in perfect relationship with himself without any need of anyone or anything else. So the Father and the Son, their purposes, their plans, their actions as it pertains to the salvation, they are the exact same. They have a perfect unity. And so the best translation really for this text is no one really knows the son except the father like some people know the father but they don't really know him like the son knows him and no one really knows the father except the son so the son and the father are one and god being one and having no division in himself is united and everyone agrees in the godhead regarding the who when and the where as it pertains to the understanding of the gospel Yet the question still remains, if understanding the gospel is impossible for someone to receive without God, then how does God determine who is to be saved? Again, this all comes back to this understanding of election. And let me just give you a couple of places where this becomes really clear. God saves his people. Those whom he has chosen to save, he will save. John 8, verse 27, whoever is of God hears the words of God, the reason why you do not hear them, Jesus said to those standing before him, is that you are not of God. Later in John 10, about the same thing is said. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The application for us ought to be pretty simple when you think about it. My question for you this morning is, do you know God? If you do, how did you come to know him? Was it because of the family that you came from? Was it because of the beauty that you possess? Was it because of the gifts that you have? Was it for your intelligence and your wisdom? No, none of it. It had nothing to do with you at any point, and it still doesn't to this day. God has chosen to love you, 
and set his special and saving love upon you. And therefore, salvation is entirely 100% a gracious gift of God. If at any point you begin to think that you becoming a Christian had something to had something to do with you, then what is surely going to be the case? Well, you should get partial credit. A low view of God, a high view of man's ability, steals the glory of God. There's no other way around it. It steals the glory of God, and it steals the great peace and the joy of our salvation. Because if God has saved us, certainly he will never give up on us, will he? He will never. And again, if there's anyone who says, but that's not fair, well, then you've just ignored everything I've just had to say. God is the potter, we are the clay. And he has the right to mold the clay however he chooses. Romans 9, Paul says it like this, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? That passage is key because it describes how God gets glory both in salvation and in condemnation. God's glory is going to be put on display before a watching world in different ways through both outcomes. So this is the first lesson that I want, wanted us to, to look at. God's sovereignly, salvation is sovereignly granted by God. Now let's look at the, the second lesson and I love this second part because, again, there's, there's people who say, well, if God is sovereign, then the, doesn't that kind of minimize the, the free offering of the gospel? And doesn't this kind of mean that we aren't actually true, moral, responsible agents? And the answer, of course, is resounding, well, no. No. We are responsible moral agents, and we certainly are to extend the gospel to everyone, everywhere, at all times. So lesson number two is this. Salvation is universally offered in Jesus. Salvation is universally offered in Jesus. Now take this in because, again, like I said, these two truths about God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. You need to understand they always run parallel together in Scripture. And, and the moment you decide to believe in one without believing other, that's when you fall into error. And this is why if you're a Christian, really you should just be committed to believing the Bible. And if the Bible says it, then you believe it. That's what we're talking about here. We're entering into the realm of mystery I can admit that. Hopefully you can admit that too. There are things about God that we cannot get our mind around. But in those moments, we still know that God is good and that God is wise. And so as you wrestle with these tensions, that's ultimately the question at the end of the day is will you trust in God's wisdom, right? So these run parallel. So, at, so Jesus has just praised God for his sovereignty 
Following that up, though, what is the next thing he says? Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the good news. You might think for a moment, if we just focused on the first truth, that God is kind of cold or indifferent or capricious. Not true at all, though, is it? Because here the Savior bids that all come to him. And he communicates to us the, the character that he has, the kindness that he offers but we also need to notice the conditions in which he provides such incredible care. We're going to notice all of these things, but before we do, I just want to notice the exclusivity of the gospel in this offer. Salvation is only found in one person and one place, and who is it? Jesus Christ. There are seven times that Jesus references himself in this text. Listen to all of these. He says, come to me, I give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's all in Jesus. You want salvation? Go to Jesus. He is the only means by which anyone can be saved. And he gives rest to all who would come to him, all who are heavy and laden, labor and heavy laden, and in other translations it says, weary and burdened. In this moment, we need to understand something. Jesus is not referring to these burdens as something that's physical, or even to the overall hardships of life, such as something terrible happening in the workplace or with your business or squabbles inside the home. He's not even talking about the consequences of sin. That Sometimes we make decisions that we very quickly regret, and it makes life harder. He's speaking specifically about the vain attempts that the Jews had in trying to get right with God. If you know the Old Testament, then you know the predicament of Israel. You see, for years, Israel had sought to get right with God through works-based righteousness. They thought, if I, just, if I just, again, if I just kept enough commands, if I just did enough good things, God would love me. And this became exacerbated, especially by the rabbis, because they devised so many more rules in addition to the laws that had already existed. And they would just pile up one rule after another, after another. And so when Jesus says to come to him, what is he saying? He's saying, give up. Stop trying to earn your righteousness with God because there is a way for you to become right with God and it's not in what you do, but in what I do for you. That's the message. 
Christ is everything that we could not be. He is the one who lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father. Every day he woke up, he was perfectly surrendered and perfectly submitted in his thoughts and in his desires and in his behavior to the glory of God. And yet at the end of his life, what happened? He was hung on the cross and treated as a sinner and punished as a criminal. And why did he do it? That he would substitute himself on the cross for sinners like us. And the beauty of our faith in Christ is not only does Jesus receive our sin and the punishment for our sin, but we receive his righteousness. Stop with the works. Jesus is sufficient to save you. And all you have to do is believe in him. Faith alone in him leads to everlasting joy and eternal life. So you say, well, what does that mean? I've heard that before. I know I'm supposed to believe in Jesus. Place my faith in him. What does that mean? It's really portrayed very beautifully in this text when you look at this. It, 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 we're told that we are to take up Jesus' yoke and learn from it. We're familiar with yokes to an extent. We're pretty modern, so we're looking at tractors pulling implements in the fields. We're not looking at oxen, but we're still pretty familiar with a yoke. But a yoke is something that we put on oxen, and it would help them pull a plow behind them or some other uh, item. In the Old Testament, though, a yoke was often uh, used to describe what was placed on the people when they had to be submission into wicked, evil rulers. But Jesus is saying, I have a yoke I want to put on you. That yoke is his teaching. That yoke is his way of life. That yoke is his plans for your life. And it's all very ironic, right? Because you would think that if you're putting something on your shoulders, that it would just naturally, it's going to make life more difficult. But that's it's not what happens. He says, when you take my yoke and you put it on you, life gets easier, not harder. And so come learn from me. Repent of your own way of living life and trust in mine. Jesus has a far better perfect plan for your life than you could ever devise for yourself. The question, though, is are you willing to trust him with that? If you trust in yourself, life will continue to get harder and harder and harder and harder. But Jesus offers true freedom in the gospel. And I just love Dane Ortland's description of what it means that, gen that Jesus is gentle and lowly. In fact, book plug. We got these books, Gentle and Lowly. We gave them out, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago for uh, almost, yeah, I don't know if it was a year, year and a half, two years ago now. My mind isn't the best at these things, but uh, we gave it out around Easter time. We still have, I don't know, 15 copies on the table. So if you, didn't, if you don't have this book, I strongly encourage you to pick up uh, Gentle and Lowly at the welcome table. But this is how Dane Ortland describes this character of Christ. He says, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, easily exacerbated. 
He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Like, have you ever done something wrong? Like somebody, maybe it's your parent, they've been like, please don't do this. But then you did it, right? And you're nervous to stand before that person because they're going to play the, oh, I told you so card, right? Like, you knew that was going to happen. I told you not to do that. That's not Jesus. He doesn't stand over us with this domineering spirit and, and say to us, well, look what you did, you little jerk. Right? He is so gracious. He is completely approachable. And there's nothing that you have done which he cannot understand. Because he has walked among us. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. And therefore, the Bible says that he is a perfect high priest that we can approach. And dear friends, that would be my hope and encouragement for you this morning. That you would run to Jesus, who offers complete forgiveness, who offers abundant joy, who offers true freedom. But this is required of you. Give up trusting in your own Resources to get right with God and trust in the only provision, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.